If you're looking for a new podcast to try, how about Planet Money? One thing people say about Planet Money is how much they love listening to it, even though they don't care about business or economics. It's just a smart show with great stories that help explain your world. Find Planet Money on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. You're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today, we're going to play an interview I did at WNYC's Women in Podcasting Festival, Work It!, I spoke with Eileen Shakin, the co-creator and executive producer of The L Word. She's also been the executive producer and writer for Empire, the popular Fox network show, and also was the executive producer of the Emmy Award-winning Hulu series, The Handmaid's Tale. Let's take a listen. We're thrilled to be here for a live podcast, and we're going to have, I know it's going to be hard for you to understand, we're going to, in the era of cable television and tiny little, they call it snackable information, we're going to have an actually substantive conversation about where media is going, about where digital is going. And I'm very pleased to have Eileen Chaikin here. Doesn't need too much introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. Eileen is obviously a longtime television executive, a television creator, a television writer, producer, grand personality of director even. And she's known for a lot of things. Right now she is the what is it, showrunner for Empire, an executive producer of Handmaid's Tale. And yes, exactly. And it was... Let's just say it was her idea. I remember her talking about it a long time ago. Well, it was uh, Margaret Atwood. It was Margaret Atwood's idea. All right, we'll give it. All right. She's pretty good at writing. And then, obviously, probably the best-known show she's worked on, although she, you worked on... Did you work on Dallas or Dynasty? One of them. I worked yeah. for Aaron Spelling. Right. But not on Dallas or Dynasty. You, which one was it? it was, um, well, I worked for... I was an executive with Aaron Spelling. When they um, were I didn't work on any of his famous shows, but I did learn television at his feast. All right, we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, and then, of course, she's most famous for The L Word, which is a show that was groundbreaking in its time. And she's, we're going to talk about where that's going because it looks like there might be a reunion and a new, a new thing. And let's just get into it. First thing I want to talk about, Eileen, is let's talk a, little, talk a little bit about your background. Because when I talk to Silicon Valley people, I always talk about where they came from and how they got to where they got. And your background is really interesting. You were an executive. The beginning of your career, you came out to Hollywood, fresh-faced. Mm-hmm. However, And you wanted to do what? Well, I went to film school and came to Hollywood within a year after being graduated from film school, um, planning to be a great filmmaker, a, mm-hmm. you know, a great writer or director, right. um, but had to get a job and did what many people do who come out of film school, like looked for a job in the business, and I wound up, my first job was as a trainee at Creative Artists Agency. Mm-hmm. It was a very long time ago. And right. Kind of Is that mailroom? Is that... Um, well, to give you a sense of how long ago it was, they didn't take women in the mailroom. Okay. It was before women were allowed to work in mailrooms. All right. So I was hired as an assistant, and I was told, you know, you'll be on this a mailroom track, but you can't be in the mailroom because girls can't lift typewriters. Okay. Um, and you did what then? I was a reader. They put me in a little cubby hole, mm-hmm. and all day long I read scripts and wrote coverage. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they moved me onto a trainee track and they opened the mailroom to women who wound up being pretty good at carrying typewriters mm-hmm. um, and made me a trainee. Right, okay. So you worked your way, but you didn't want to be an agent though, right? Well, I didn't start out wanting to be an agent, but when you go into that program, you become competitive and you just want to do what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. So I was on an agent track, not Mm -hmm. moving fast enough, but trying really hard to become an agent in that very, very cutthroat world. What what did you do? What did you go home and put on a suit and Um, kicked people that you didn't like? What? I, I... tried to impress Mike Ovitz. Right, okay. Because he was the boss back then. Mm -hmm. And so I did all kinds of uh, industrious things, came up with projects, met with clients, and did everything I could to impress, but kept not getting promoted. But it was, you know, there, there was some recognition that I had some ability as a storyteller. And finally, I got offered um, by a couple of clients a job as a development executive. Back then, we called it a Mm D-girl. Okay. And so I 
left That was actually what it was artists. called, D-Girl. Yeah, right. it was a D-Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anybody uses that term anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but Mike Ovitz called, called me into his office and gave me one of those mafioso talks that he was known for uh-huh. and said, you know, we'll be good to you if you protect our secrets and go and be a D-girl and we'll see where it goes. What secrets do they have that needed protecting? There are lots of secrets. All right. Okay. We'll get to those in a minute. Um, so you went off and did that and then moved into television creation. Um, I did. I developed movies for a number of years. I worked for two producers with a movie deal at Warner Brothers. One of those producers went over to work for Aaron Spelling. That mm-hmm. was the mid-1980s. Right. And I was developing movies. And I met Aaron Spelling. He said, would you like to come and work for me in television? Mm-hmm. And because it was Aaron Spelling Productions, I thought I might as well. Right. And then I wound up for five years running Aaron's television company, being mm-hmm. the head of development and then the head of television and production. And um, we, it was in the most fallow time in Spelling's history. It was mm-hmm. when he was just irrelevant and, and falling out of favor. And This is the we, creator of Dynasty in Dallas. It and... was just after Dynasty in Dallas and just before Beverly Hills 90210. Right. And the one really significant thing that I did when I was working for Aaron Spelling, nobody knows was an Aaron Spelling production. We put together Twin Peaks. Oh, wow. I put that together, and mm-hmm. we produced it. All right. That's a great thing. And it's back now. That's, and it's uh, back. Uh, so you, you did all that. And what was the goal? Because you had started off as a filmmaker. You wanted to... I wanted to write and direct. But right. I got caught up being an executive, and it's mm-hmm. very seductive. I mean, you, you just become competitive, and you want to step on people's heads and get ahead. And mm-hmm. I just got very caught up in it. And when I left Spelling, I had one weird little job in between, but then I went... What was and, the weird little job? Um, I, there was a TV producer called Tom Patchett, and he had a company, and I worked for him for less than a year. And then I went to work for Quincy Jones, uh-huh. who was starting a company with Warner Brothers, Quincy Jones Entertainment. They had invested a lot of money in him, mm-hmm. and he wanted to make movies and television. And I was brought over there as their head creative executive mm-hmm. and spent three years there and we put together the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air mm-hmm. and I wound up being a producer on that, not a writer producer, mm-hmm. but it was, it was both a wildly fabulous time and a great experience and also my crash and burn executive job mm-hmm. because, because it was very political, very intense, really fun and, and kind of heady, but also, so many knives out, mm-hmm. always. And I got caught by one of those knives. What happened? Oh, it was some young Turk that I hired as a junior development executive came for me. Mm-hmm. And it just got very nasty and ugly. And there's, there's lots of gossip involved that I won't get into. Mm-hmm. But um, I realized I'm going down. And right. I'm not enjoying this. And I'm also not doing what I came here for. Because, right. and, and during that time, every once in a while, I try to write something. But when you're being an executive, it's hard to focus on anything creative. Right. And so I'd get halfway through a script and think, oh, no, 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 I can't do this. Mm-hmm. But then I knew I was going to get fired from Quincy Jones Entertainment. Mm-hmm. So I went to Telluride for a week. While all my friends went skiing, I locked myself in the house and I wrote a script. Which was? It was called Esme's Posse. It was a little... Esme's Posse? Esme Posse. Okay. It was a little scrappy girl action movie at a time when nobody was making those kinds of movies. Uh-huh. It was really angry and feminist and just kind of full of everything that I um, was pissed off about. Mm-hmm. And I came back and sat in my office and waited to get fired and then slipped the script to an agent I knew and said, I'm not going to be an executive anymore. I'm a writer. Get me a job. And you slipped them Esme's Posse. I slipped them Esme's Posse. And based on Esme's Posse, within a week, I had a job writing a movie for Disney. From the, from the script itself. Mm-hmm. So I want to get, stay with executives for a minute because it's changed, because the power has changed. So were yeah. you thinking that that's because the, the, you thought the power was in executives, from executives? It wasn't that I thought the power was in it. I still wanted to be a filmmaker and really, you know, the value, as in, what everybody wanted to be back then was a director. Right. And CAA had that T-shirt, but what I really want to do is direct. Yeah, yeah. It was, right. you know, directors were powerful and, and aspirational in every possible way. Television was nothing that anybody wanted anything to do with. And being a writer, especially a feature writer, was exactly what it is today. 
you're the most valuable and the most abused member mm -hmm. of, of any enterprise. All right. So you, so you would have the, the, the reason I'm asking is because you've been a writer and executive on these, on these things where you have a lot more control. And we'll talk about that. So you started doing the writing. Your first success was The L Word then, or not? Well, my first considerable success was right. The L Word. I had a movie made early on in my career. Which was? Um, it was Barbed Wire. Oh, wow. That's right. I forgot about that. That's right. That was that movie. I love that movie. Does anyone watch Barbed Wire? Has everyone seen it? You must see it. Explain the star. <laughs> well, it was, I, I had this premise that you know, girls should star in action movies, that we should make a feminist action movie. Right. Um, nobody really was buying into the premise, but it was being talked about. This, this was, must have been still the 1980s, mm -hmm. um, or no, the early 90s. Um, and so I got hired to adapt a comic book based on Esme's posse. I got hired to adapt a comic book called Barbed Wire about a kick-ass woman um, in the near future. And... I wrote it thinking the biggest star of the moment back then was Demi Moore. She was the highest paid actress in history. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I want Demi Moore to be barbed wire. I'm going to write a big feminist, female-driven action movie. And right. I wrote this script, and I was really excited by it. And it was a very difficult process because, of course, it was all men who were giving me notes. Right. And um, I'm Christine, what was the worst note you got on that? That I got into a big fight because I had a, a transgender character and they were outraged by it and they just started talking to me about, you're trying to make this into a gay movie and you're corrupting the, the IP and, and I just kind of lost heart. Mm -hmm. So that was the worst note. It was the, just... It which wasn't in the movie. There were, I remember that movie did have a lot more. because no, the movie got rewritten by a guy, of mm -hmm. course. Um, and it was directed by a guy, and they cast Pamela Sue Anderson. In right, the lead. right. I remember that. Although she wasn't bad, she was interesting. I mm. liked it. I gotta say, I enjoyed it. You know, it, it opened with a striptease. I yes. didn't write that. No, you didn't write the striptease. No. Later, you mm -hmm. would write those. Um, so you, so it was made. Your name was on it. My name was on it. I got, um, I, I got. Credit in the first position, which meant that it was like worth a big chunk of money to me, and it was you know important in my career. Sure. So you, but, so from Barbed Wire, which most people think success for Eileen, but not so Eileen does not think it's a success no. for Eileen. So for like five more years, I tried writing movies. None of them got made. It was frustrating. What's it the was, one that didn't get made that you loved? I can't even tell you. You don't even remember. I think probably if I'd written anything great, it would have been made. That's always been my attitude. Okay. It's, I'm, I don't bemoan the ones that don't get made. If I still believed in it, I'd still be trying to make it. Right, okay. Um, I wound up getting, like, I, I was on my last legs. I had two small children mm -hmm. and was, you know, supporting my family and tough times. And I got hired to write a movie for Showtime. Mm -hmm. And it didn't pay a fraction of what I was making writing feature films, but I also wasn't getting hired to write feature films the way that I had been. And I took this very cool assignment for Showtime, writing a movie called Dirty Pictures, okay. which was, it was a true story, and it was about um, an obscenity trial, um, the work of Robert Maplethorpe mm -hmm. and the Republican-led Congress trying to defund the NEA and the definition of what obscenity means. Right. So it was the piss Christ. Piss Christ. It was. It was. Do you know I covered piss that? Christ. I covered that for the Washington Post. Really? Because it, well, it, it was at the Corcoran. I mean, that was what I was writing about. I was right. writing about Maplethorpe. I was writing about the piss Christ. And um, for people who don't know this, piss Christ was uh, was a photograph. He did a lot of photographs. And the they, name of the artist? Uh, Maplethorpe. No, no, Maplethorpe wasn't the. Piss oh, Christ the other guy artist. was the piss Christ. But anyway, they had a controversy because they displayed it at a Washington D.C. museum, um, and it became the biggest story. And then they would. There was protests and anti-protests and this and that, and there was a giant penis on the mall at one point, which was in enjoyable yeah. for me. And Jesse Helms on the yeah. floor of the Jesse Senate, Helms. tearing up photographs and... Yeah, it was Jesse know. Helms. That was the Jesse Helms, yeah. Newt Gingrich period. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a lot of noise about just a photograph, essentially. But, so, but it was about whether, yes. you know, what the NEA funds that 
they considered to be um, transgressive art, right. and they were defining it as obscenity and trying to defund the NEA. And so there was a museum director in Cincinnati who That's put right. on the Maplethorpe show and then was charged with obscenity and put on trial. Mm-hmm. And that was the movie that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, James Woods played the James museum Woods. director. The James one who's now Woods, tweeting up a storm. James Woods right. played this museum director who, right. you know, was the champion of the arts and artistic expression. Is that what we call him now, Vile James Woods? Because everybody gets a nickname in, in the Trump era. I think that's a good one. I it think is. Vile James Woods is how I'll we'll refer to him. tell you some James Woods stories someday. All right, not today. No. Um, let's not let him sully our high-level conversation here. But he's a pig. Um, so <laughs> let's just say, let's end it there. Um, so you were doing this for Showtime, which was sort of the Amazon slash Netflix of the day. Those it, it were, was, it, they hadn't yet had a hit. They didn't, they, it wasn't really on the map. Their big thing was some television series, the Playboy Hour or something like that. They were doing, you know, some Playboy programming. Right. But they were starting to make movies and identified that they wanted to compete with HBO. Right, right. They were not, they were sort of the Avis mm-hmm. to HBO's yeah. Hertz, essentially. But still outlying in Hollywood. Yeah. So explain so wrote, very quickly the well, L, how the L will then came. L so I wrote this movie for them, Dirty Pictures, which wound up winning a Golden Globe. Mm-hmm. And it was Showtime's first Golden Globe, and they loved that. Mm-hmm. And they, they felt like this is really going to happen. We're going to start to compete with HBO. And I loved it, too. I loved, not that we won a Golden Globe, but I loved writing this movie, writing about art, writing about um, gay themes, mm-hmm. writing about things that I really cared passionately about. And at the same time, I had written this article. I'm, as you know, not a journalist. Right. But I wrote an article for Los Angeles Magazine about the gay and lesbian baby boom in the baby LA. Boom. The gayby. The gayby boom, okay. which is what they called the article. Yeah. And I went into Showtime and I said, um, you know, we should make a television show about lesbians in Hollywood. Wouldn't mm-hmm. that be cool? Mm-hmm. And they laughed at me and said, <laughs> no, yeah. um, you know, that's not anything we're ever going to do. Mm-hmm. But that's a cute idea. Mm-hmm. And I moved on. I wrote another movie for Showtime, in fact, that also got made. But I still wanted to write about being gay mm-hmm. and about my experience of gayness. And I still thought, even though I had never written series television, I thought this is where that story belongs because it's ongoing stories. It's stories about, about life ongoing mm-hmm. and in the way that serialized television has historically done, um, you know, melodrama. Right. Elevated melodrama. So how did it get made? Well, then Showtime, after turning me down and really laughing at me for this idea, they bought the rights to an English series called Queer as Folk Mm -hmm. and made a show about gay men. Right. And the night that Dirty Pictures won the Golden Globe, Jerry Offsay, who was the president of Showtime, whispered in my ear, I think we'd like to try the little lesbian show with you. The little lesbian show. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's how it's done in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, so you started to make it. It Obviously, you cast it. Jennifer Beals was critical uh, to the casting. And then you brought up a lot of unknown, relatively unknown actresses, yeah. uh, actors at the time. Um, mm-hmm. how did, how, what did you imagine would happen? Because it hit like a atom bomb, really. I guess we shouldn't use that right now with Korea. Uh, but what, how did you imagine it would be thought of? I, I try not to imagine the relative success or failure of my projects when right. I'm working on them. I try just to kind of make them and make them well. But that said, I had these conversations with Showtime, with that same guy, um, which he said to me, and they had a tough time with Queer as Folk. They couldn't cast it. They cast all unknowns. Right, they Because did. nobody of stature of no wanted to play a gay man mm-hmm. and so jerry offsay said to me we're going to make your little lesbian show we're committed it's he not kept casting calling it little contingent. lesbian show all right yeah mm-hmm. it's not casting contingent because you're not going to get any stars right and i said you know that's lovely i'm really glad you're going to make my show regardless of what whether we get stars but i'll bet you we are going to get stars women are different mm-hmm. women are bolder and less afraid mm-hmm. than men but also women have less to lose right um where you're not talking about guys that 
fear that they're going to lose their careers because they play a gay man. Women aren't going to have as much to lose, but also the audience isn't going to judge them in the same way. Right. So I said, you know, let's just see. I think we will get some interesting actors. And the first person to sign on was Jennifer Beals. Mm-hmm. Right. And she, it, it was around her. The show was built it around. It was built around her. Then. Around her. Yeah. And did you imagine it would, how many seasons did it go on? Six. When you look back on that, and we're going to talk about what's happening now, so because I think people are very excited about the concept of, uh, and especially, oddly enough, young gay women right now, because everybody, the one question I get is, do you know Eileen Shaken, and is she making the L word again, which is becoming rediscovered, I guess, even though it's, when did it go off the air? And, it went off the air in 2009. Right, right, but people are now watching it. What was interesting about the audience of that show is I kept thinking, everyone was like, oh, that's not, when it first got announced, it was like, it's not going to work. I'm like, what's not to like? Hot women, sex. I like, there's nobody that doesn't want to watch it. Gay men like it. Lesbians like it. Straight men like it. Straight, you know, it's like, a, it, it did, it, get, it got a wider audience than what you'd imagine. Did Showtime think that? Showtime didn't, but I did. Yeah, because you thought it would be that. What would you have done differently of it at the time. I mean, you had a relative amount of power, but not the amount of power you'd later get. It was all... I I wouldn't have done anything differently. I mean, I I would have been better. I would have been a better storyteller always. Mm -hmm. But um, the way that it went was great because Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was doing when I started. And they gave me a chance to learn on the job. And by the time we came out the other end, I think I was better at mm-hmm. making television and I did come out with you call it power I don't I'm not all that comfortable calling it that, why not but certainly the ability and why are you well, comfortable calling it power because because not, not because I don't want to be powerful or that I don't think that women should be powerful right. but because like I, I had a shrink once who said to me that power doesn't belong in love And creativity and love, I think, are a lot alike. You don't want to approach this from a point of view of power. I want to be powerful and be able to do whatever I want to do. But when I'm involved in a creative endeavor, I don't want it to be about power. I want it to be about inspiration. Right, but at the same time, getting things actually... It's an excellent sentiment, but getting things made is part of it. Like the ability to get things to happen. You had a guy whisper whisper in your ear and let you do it. Um, and I want to talk about that getting into this era, this now era. But first, I want to finish with the L word. So you do this. It's enormously successful. You cr- create... Uh, there's certain shows that do zeitge- or zeitgeisty kind of shows. It was one of them, Sex and the Cities. And now there's a whole bunch of them that set certain tones. Whatever, whether you like it or not, they definitely had an impact. Sopranos, some others. What impact do you think it had from your perspective? Well, I, I think that... The L word was involved in, took part in a moment mm-hmm. when gay lives were becoming understood and seen mm-hmm. as they never had before. Right. And doing, and what impact do you imagine it had? I think that it had the effect of allowing us to be seen, allowing us to feel safer coming out mm-hmm. and living our lives openly, I think a lot of people felt more able to come out to their families and friends. Um, I mean, that's the biggest impact that it had. It was a, a cultural impact. Right. Um, something that I hear about a lot from people. Yes. And then I think that in the world of media and entertainment and storytelling, it was, you know, it, it, it was part of a moment in which we became more represented. We became more, more seen and more a part of, of the fabric of representation in storytelling. So why bring it back? Explain what you're doing that, as much as you can. Uh, you you well, did a beautiful photo spread. You all looked as hot as ever. And you also had one of the people in the photo spread that you killed off. I'm curious how you're going to bring her back. But uh, she was dead. Well, that was a reunion. That, that was a reunion. That, that reunion in EW, EW right. had... Technically, nothing to do with rebooting the L word. Okay, that was an L word reunion, and there were actually two dead people in the okay vote, in, in okay. the photo spread because um oh yes, me Dana, Dana was, yes. was there too. Dana, Dana, that's what I was thinking. Dana, oh, Dana, Dana and Ma- Jenny. Jenny, Jenny was, was yes, that's yes, right, so, Jenny. Yeah. Um, but and I knew I was when good we with did. you killing her. But go ahead, move along. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, uh, you're not alone. Um, 
not alone. So what, when we did that photo spread, I knew that Showtime and I were talking about bringing the show back. Yeah. But none of the actresses knew. Oh, okay. But they talked about it because I got to know some of them, getting to know you, and they were yeah. always talking about Jennifer. And so bringing others. the show back came about in this way. Um, and, and there are like several different answers to your question. Okay. Jennifer, Kate, and Leisha, who've remained good friends of mine and whom I think of as the three most iconic members of that cast. Yes, um, Jennifer uh, Beals, Leisha Haley, and, and um, Kate, Kate Manick, or Bet, Shane, and Alice. Right. Um, we've talked over the years, and about probably almost five years ago, they said to me, Eileen, don't you think we should bring back the L word? Mm-hmm. And secretly I thought, no. <laughs> um, I'm doing other things, and right. you're all doing other things, and it's not the right time, and maybe someday. But I never said no to them. I just said, yeah, I think maybe. You know, mm-hmm. let's talk about it. And we would keep talking about it, and we'd come up with ideas about how to do it. But I kept thinking, this is not going to happen right now. Showtime isn't going to be interested. I talked to my dear friend at Showtime, who's now the president of the network, mm-hmm. who was then my point executive, Gary Levine, who's one of my favorite people in all of television. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talked to him about it, and he said, uh, I don't yeah. you know. Because reunion shows are what they are, right? And back then, nobody was doing right. Right. reboots. Which, right. Suddenly, everybody's doing them. But I just also just didn't feel that it was the right time. I and mean, we had Barack Obama in the White House. Things were pretty good. Right, right. No need for another lesbian show. Right. And, and you know, and I kept thinking, we've passed the baton, and there are more lesbians on TV. Not enough, but it'll happen, and there will be. And it kept not happening. Right. And there really isn't adequate representation or any really interesting or evolutionary or revolutionary representation mm-hmm. on television still. And I thought there would be when the hour went off the air. Yeah. And then Gary and I had also talked for years about doing Handmaid's Tale. Right. And I pursued Handmaid's Tale back when I was still doing The L Word, and we tried to get the rights to it and couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I finally moved on because the rights were unavailable. And then a couple of years ago, I was having lunch with an executive at MGM Mm -hmm. who said, what are you doing next? And I said, well, I really want to do Handmaid's Tale, but I can't get the rights. And he said to me, oh, we just bought the library. That is, MGM just bought the library that owned all the rights to Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. And we went back to Gary Levine, and it was seven years after Gary and I had initially said we wanted to do it. And I said, Gary, we've got the rights to Handmaid's Tale. Are you still interested? And he said, yeah. So what was it about Handmaid's Tale? I'm going to go, I'm going to switch back to the L word, but what was it about Handmaid's Tale? And, and were you expecting it to be, you had to give it over to another writer did. to run it because you have an exclusive mm-hmm. deal with Fox. But why did you want to make it? But you, so, I, you had talked about this with me and I was and like, And I just absolutely. want to assure you that Handmaid's Tale has everything to do with why the L word is getting made now. So okay, that's why right. I switched to that. Okay. Um, so... Ten years ago, I wanted to do it just because it was a cool idea. I was doing The L Word. I was thinking, I want to make another show for Showtime that's about women, that's about the themes that I care about, but I want to do something quite different. And I love science fiction mm-hmm. or specul- speculative fiction. And <clears throat> I've always loved that book. It was a seminal book for me. And I just thought, this is a television show, and nobody's making TV shows like this right now. Let's try it. Mm-hmm. So it was just inspiration at the time. Right. But by the time we got these rights, we went back to Showtime. They wanted to do it. I wrote a script for Showtime. Mm -hmm. um, And it was still the same. It was just, this is a cool idea. This would be a good TV show. Right. But Showtime passed on it. Barack Obama was still president. Okay. So we don't have to worry about Losing our credit cards and exactly. being subjugated into rape, okay? And so, you know, Showtime, we, we almost got there. They said, we really love this. I think we're going to make it, but maybe not. But we th-. And then they passed, and I took this job at Fox running somebody else's TV show. Which is Empire. Which is Empire. A little TV show. It's kind of a hit. But go and ahead. Empire blew up. Right. And I made an exclusive overall deal with Fox because Empire was big, and I figured I'm going to be doing this for a while. And then the head of MGM called me and said, I just gave your Handmaid's Tale script that you wrote for Showtime to Hulu, and they're ordering it straight to series. Oh, wow. And I said, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. But, but was, there, was there regrets that you couldn't work on it? Yeah. 
yeah, I couldn't do it. Right. So we're ordering it straight to Sirius. And I said, that's great, but I can't do it. I'm exclusive to Fox. And he said, damn, we're going to have to find another showrunner. Yeah. So they, you know, I, I maintained my position as an executive producer, mm -hmm. but I couldn't run the show or indeed figure out how to make it into a television show. They hired a guy called Bruce Miller, whom I had never heard of, mm -hmm. and he did a fabulous job. He did. I did have him on a podcast. Yeah. He was really, he gave you all credit. Yeah, yeah, he's really, really good, and he's doing beautiful work, and he's a lovely and gracious guy mm -hmm. who also recognizes that he's doing a show that should be done by a woman, mm -hmm. and he's made sure that there are a lot of women's voices, including the director who directed that first fabulous Right, pilot. he talked about her a lot. Yeah. Um, what, how do you think of it? Do you, how do you like it? I, mean, I, would, I think it's Would you have incredible. done something differently? Or? Um, I probably would have done something differently, but um, only because I'm a different writer. Mm -hmm. But what happened is, you know, when that happens, there's always, there's an arbitration. You mm -hmm. know, when they make your show, and it was based on my script, but he took it over and he wrote it, or rather rewrote it because mm -hmm. he knew where he wanted to go with it. And there came that moment when I had to read his script and I hadn't seen the show yet. Right. And I was thinking, I'm going to arbitrate and get shared credit for this mm -hmm. because I put 10 years of my life into it and right. I want it. And I read his script and I've been through a lot of arbitrations and I know how my guild works. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I would win that credit arbitration mm -hmm. because the first writer always gets kind of a privileged position but I read his script and I thought it was so good mm -hmm. and I thought he'd made such good decisions that I just sent him an email I, I bypassed my agents and managers and I said I'm not going to arbitrate for credit you really deserve this and it's really good mm -hmm. and he wrote me back the next day and was kind of stunned because Chuck, that you gave up power <laughs> like speaking yeah. of which in creativity why do you think it was pertinent why 10 years ago did you think it was pertinent and what why do you think it's pertinent uh, well now? i think that you know even even when things were looking better and we had some democratic um administrations we were still fighting all the same battles and the you know, the, the opposition was still trying to take us down and take away our rights. And it was, you know, I mean, The Handmaid's Tale will always be pertinent um, because it's such a great piece of literature. As a story, it'll always be relevant. Mm -hmm. um, just it was a great story and right. a great story to tell, even if it was more speculative and reflective. It does feel real. But now it, it was interesting because when the, the jogging, remember they're wearing the, jo the jeggings essentially and someone got mad at them for wearing the yoga pants. Uh, it was at the same time that girl was pulled off a flight because she was, the teenager was pulled off the flight because she was right. wearing yoga pants. Yeah. Which was like, whoa, this was like, the, you know, I was, it was sort of odd that it was timed almost exactly watching that, which was interesting. So I want to get into the political area, but first I want to talk a little bit about digital, but so L word, so where, so, where is it? So where what is happened it? is, you know, then Trump got elected, The Handmaid's Tale went on the air, and suddenly it was the most relevant show on the planet, it is, let alone yeah. on television, and it was everywhere. And, um, I, and just as it was happening, it was about to debut, and we knew it was going to be important and powerful, I called my friend at Showtime, Gary Levine, and he picked up the phone, and he said, I know why you're calling. You're calling me to rub this in my face. I wish that we were doing Handmaid's Tale we should never have passed. And I said, well, you're right. But no, I'm calling you to say, what do you think about rebooting the L word? Wow, okay. And? And he said, hmm, that's interesting. And again, like Handmaids, it suddenly felt a little more urgent. It mm -hmm. felt like this isn't happening and we've got something to say. Mm -hmm. And he called me back a few days later and he said, okay, we're in. Let's do it. And, when, and it, I'll, I'll also say that when I proposed that to him, I said to him, I can't do it, by the way, because I have an exclusive overall deal at Fox, mm -hmm. but I want it to happen, and I think it should be done by a young woman um, who is as young or younger than I was when I first did this and who has something to say about what's happening in the world and who knows more about what's happening than I do because I'm old and married now. Okay, so is it a young... You, you're aiming to hire a young gay woman. I would say yes, although we can't. I mean, we're, we're not allowed to talk about um, sexual orientation or gender when we hire, but mm -hmm. um, if, I, if I had to imagine the L word writer, she would be a young lesbian. Okay. And you, the, the three are involved in it. They're producers? Um, 
Jennifer, Kate, and Leisha, who kept it alive all of these years, who really I credit with just pushing me and fanning the flames, um, are my partners, and the four of us are executive producers. And they will be in it. And they will be in it. They'll reprise their characters uh -huh. and tell the story of where their characters are 10 years later right. and provide the continuity. Um, and but he's not bringing back all the old characters. He's creating new ones, presumably. Um, it's create, there will be a whole new ensemble built around these three characters. It should feel seamless. Mm -hmm. Any of the original characters that aren't dead could theoretically come back. Right. And some of the dead ones could come back. And some of the dead yeah. ones. Yeah. I just saw Kingsman. The guy was dead and then he wasn't. Um, which was fine. It, it was fine. So, so when is that coming? Um, you never know when anything is coming until it's written, and right now that's in the process. Um, but I'd like to think that within a year there will be a new L word in the works. All right. So you can't write it, but what would be the topics you think are important? I'm not sure that I even know. I, I, I think that somebody else is going to get to say what those topics are, but certainly we're going to talk about the world as it is now. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I know that, here's what I know will be different and that we'll be more mindful of, and these are things that we talk about, what I've talked with Showtime, I've talked with um, my partners, I've talked with writers who've come in with takes mm -hmm. on the project. The show will be more inclusive, there will be more of what usually is called diversity. You and mm -hmm. I had a conversation. Yeah, about we're going to talk before. about that. In the thing. But it will be. It will certainly be a more representative and inclusive show in every way, racially, <laughs> ethnically, economically, mm -hmm. um, and in terms of representing the spectrum of um, sexual orientation and gender identity. Mm -hmm. It will be more inclusive. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And so when it debut, and it will be on Showtime. It will be, it it will be, be back on Showtime. On Showtime. Um, now, you've been working on, I want to get into the digital elements because we only got a, about 20 minutes or so. Um, you are working on Empire. It's not your show, but you've been running. It's a huge hit. You've had a relatively traditional arc as a, as a creator in Hollywood. You know, the, 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 well, there's, there's this, and a very successful one. And we were talking this backstage, the idea of there's, certain, and you don't want to use the word power, but there's certain producers or creators in positions of power. Um, and you, when we met, you were very interested in online. And so you, how we met. that's how we met. You found me and you wanted me to tell you all the secrets of Silicon Valley. I thought you were working on a show that I was going to star in, but that's all right. Um, still going to happen. Still can happen. No, you named a character on me, Meg. Oh, I did. You did. You had on a character. On the L word. On the L word, yeah. But it's okay. I never got on the show, but that's all right. I'm fine with that. Um, uh, when you, th you were always interested in tech. So you ha had this traditional idea, but I want to talk to you about where we, you were on stage at one of my conferences talking about the uses of social media around Empire and how important it was. It was a show that really was driven Absolutely. by social media. So you've always had a great interest in it. And I would imagine if the L word were around with Twitter and everything else, it would be a very different experience for your characters and everything else like that. How do you look, as someone who's had a more traditional sort of arc in Hollywood, at the digital Area as a creator, do you think I'm going to make something? You, Sean, I'm going to interview Shonda Rhimes later this afternoon. She's moved on to Netflix from ABC. Mm -hmm. Do you imagine you only have a two-year deal with Fox? Mm -hmm. What do you imagine is happening now for you as a as someone in a position of an ability to make choices? I guess Here's, I look at it in a very particular way because I know who I am and what I do. Mm -hmm. I'm a writer and a content creator, and I think. We always knew that digital, that, that digital media was going to encroach on traditional media and become a part of it. I, I think that, it's easy to say now in retrospect, but I suspected that it wasn't going to be separate. It wasn't going to necessarily take it over. There would be just more of an evolution. And what we see happening now is that all of these digital platforms are just becoming new places for storytellers to tell stories. Mm -hmm. There are many more things too, but whereas when we first started talking about digital, um, you know, the kind of superstars of film and television weren't going anywhere near them. Right. Now everybody wants to be making content for certain digital platforms. Netflix, Amazon, mm -hmm. Google's getting into it, Apple. Mm -hmm. 
Um, how do you look at it? Because they've got they've got to have approached you eventually, or if you can't now, but yeah. you they will. How do you, do you consider it? Because uh, at the time, I remember I was, remember I was like, Twitter's going to be big when it first started, and the you whole created Elwood, my first Twitter. I account did create for your me. first Twitter account and got you the good name that you got. But at the time, I remember being we were all up in San Francisco, and I think Jennifer was there, a whole bunch of people. I'm like, mm-hmm. you got to get on Twitter, you got to get on Twitter, mm-hmm. and they were like, Twitter, what the hell? Is that? And it was it was one of those conversations. Yeah. Now. Twitter's not progressed as a business, but it's certainly progressed as a relevant communications mm-hmm. vehicle. How do you look at those? Are you thinking of going to, do you imagine you know, Netflix is easier now, but two, three, or four years ago, Netflix was called Lithuania by the head of Time Warner. No. Do you think about that when you're as a creator? I do and I don't. I think only about my stories. I think about the stories I want to tell, but I don't presume anything about where I'm going to be able to tell them what the, um, you know, what the platform is going to be. And I now look at those platforms as every bit as viable and relevant and, and dynamic as traditional broadcast. But I also really still believe in broadcast television. Okay. And people make all of these proclamations. A couple of years ago, broadcast television was dead. It's going away. It's going to be replaced by this or that. Yeah. It, it is, is dead, but go ahead. It's, I don't, it's not. Okay. There was, there was a, an article this morning. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those, this is really surprising, but it seems like broadcast is still the place to get more people to see yes. your work than any yeah. place else. Mm-hmm. I think that broadcast television needs to evolve. I think that the way that it used to be made is irrelevant, but I don't think it's dead. Right, explain, I want you to make the argument for why it's not. I think, I think it's dying by the cell. I think it's, it will be dead. It is I not, think it'll evolve into evolve something else. into something else. Perhaps that's the way to put it. But in the, the traditional way we think of broadcast television mm-hmm. is not, it'll be live and news pretty much, um, where, where that will be. Broadcast. You might well be right. And no, my I've been right about, about every digital is, change, but go ahead. You know a whole lot more about it than I do. Yeah. I'm, and so it's tell not, me why it's, why it's still... What do you like about, about broadcast? I just like anybody who will pay me to make my shows and tell mm-hmm. my stories. Right, okay. That's, well, that's what good. I like. Yeah. All right, so I don't know if you've heard, but some of these internet companies are kind of rich. Many of their creators are billionaires, and they're very interested. You have, you know, you have... And it's not just them. It's, of course, it's Amazon... Yeah. Um, I had a really interesting discussion with uh, Jill Soloway this year at, at our code conference. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, she was new, renegotiating her deal with them. And, of course, Transparent really got them on the map for people to be more attracted to it. Wonderful show. And I said, you should get more money because you're helping sell paper towels. And she sort of looked at me like, what? And I go, well, the reason why Amazon's value went up billions is because Prime worked because Transparent made Prime interesting and then they get to sell more paper towels while people are watching the show. It's part of the whole ecosystem. And she's like, I should get paper towel money. And I said, you should get mm-hmm. paper towel money. Which is what and, television has always been. Right, exactly. But you never got paper towel money. So, but, so you have Amazon doing that. They're, sell, they're doing other things. Netflix mm-hmm. is a pretty much a pure media company. You've got Apple moving into it. They just want to sell more phones or yeah. whatever. There's a Google who's wandering around with YouTube trying to figure out where to go. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Really, they are. Let me just tell you, that's what they're doing. Um, this does not compute. And then you have even people like Lorraine Jobs Powell, who's getting, who is multi-billion uh, widow of Steve Jobs, getting into media, making yeah. investment, really interesting investments. Mm-hmm. How do you decide as a creator what you're gonna? I you just decide. don't care. Just whoever. I, would... I don't care. I really right. don't care. I mean, there are there are some places where I can tell certain stories, and some places where I can tell other stories. So I care to that extent. Right. You know, I want to do something that's more um, sexual or transgressive, or this or that. I can't do that on broadcast. So I care that there's a place where I can do that. Mm-hmm. But where's that? A... Where's mm-hmm. right now? If you were to do something and, transgressive, um, it's still Showtime or HBO, but it's also Netflix, but it's also also FX. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it's not Fox or NBC or ABC. Mm-hmm. But here's where broadcast is still exciting to me, mm-hmm. um, because it is still the place where the most people will come at one time to see a show. But it also is still free television, which mm-hmm. means that it reaches a lot of people that actually aren't watching cable and digital still. Mm -hmm. And I still feel driven by a sense of mission to tell these stories about 
I mean, to, to tell gay stories, to tell stories about marginalized communities on broadcast television where it really is going to make a difference to the lives of the people who are being represented and the people who don't know us. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I still think there's something to say. What do you imagine how these Hollywood structures are going to evolve? As someone, you're, again, you're just a writer, but you, you have, you, you're also an executive. But, but not a, a futurist or a, somebody knowledgeable like you are. Well, what would but, you like it to but evolve? But here's, here's what I feel, and, and I, I know say you this have a theory, with, with no expertise. What, what I'm observing is that what we finally get is anybody can do this and Netflix is going to dominate for a minute because they have House of Cards and something else. And they're and uh, six the, billion dollars. And six billion dollars and the biggest show on television. But then nobody took Hulu seriously when they started making content. And then they just crushed the Emmys this year. Mm -hmm. And so now it's Hulu. And then it's also nobody took Amazon seriously until they made Transparent and something else. And what we're starting to realize is it can happen anywhere. Maybe Apple's going to make a great show that's going to dominate the media landscape for a year or two. Mm -hmm. And hopefully they'll all stay in business. I don't think it's going to be like the old network days where suddenly ABC, NBC, and CBS are going to re be replaced by Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu. Mm -hmm. I think that it's just, it's a much bigger ecosystem mm -hmm. and a different way in which content finds its way out into the world. Do you like your show? But you also can do different time. Like, do you like, because really the 30-minute, 60-minute thing is just, was just a conceit at the time, just the way any, like the way a newspaper is the way it is, is because something was invented that way. You know, I'm, I, you know, I, in talk, thinking about interviewing Shonda Rhimes, like now she doesn't have to worry about ratings. She can do any, it can be 27 minutes, maybe it's 43 minutes. There will be breaks, I'm guessing, because it's later will get sold down, down the river um, in some way to another medium. Do you like the idea of creating something that's not in the 42-minute format or whatever format you have? Because um, that's one thing that creators are very interested in. Maybe I want to make it seven minutes. Maybe I want to make it... 20. We've been talking about this yeah. for years. Yeah, you and I have been talking for about For me, it. No. no. I don't want to make anything in seven minutes, but I'm interested in the fact that it can be done and that there's a great way to tell stories and somebody is going to tell a really compelling story and create a new format for storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, but it's, for, it's just, I like writing stories. I like writing long form. It's just what I like doing. It doesn't mean that it's better or more important. Um, it's just what I like but to is, do. Is the idea appealing that it doesn't matter how long or short it is to you as a creator? Because some things are shorter. And so, I mean, I think about um, that. Some of my stories are three paragraphs. Some yeah. of them, if um, it's, it's me calling the Uber CEO an asshole, I can go for days. You know, so uh, 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 that, that kind of thing. But wh where is, do you think about that as a creator? Because as a creative person, it really is compelling to have lots of choices. Yeah. Well, when, you know, I started out with fewer constraints because when we made the L word, we had we were given roughly an hour and we had to kind of go somewhere near that hour, but we could go for 60 minutes or 47 minutes and just tell our story and we didn't have to sell paper towels. In fact, mm -hmm. we weren't allowed to. I mm -hmm. once made a terrible blunder by talking about advertising integration mm -hmm. when I wasn't supposed to acknowledge that it even existed. Oh, right, that you pay that. Right. Yeah. But... Um, you know, it was, it was very liberating, and working in broadcast television, every single show I make has to be 43 minutes. Mm -hmm. 43 minutes. I've got to tell 43 minutes of story. Right. I welcome the idea of not being quite that constrained. Mm -hmm. I personally am not interested in telling seven-minute stories, but right. I think there's a lot of value in it. So you don't want to do that. So finishing up this, if there's any questions from the audience, please come up. We'll, we'll have five minutes at the end to do that. When you think about what is going to get created, do you imagine what other ways of storytelling will there be? Ways that I can't even begin to imagine. Everything Would you, is there something you'd love to be able to do? You did your reality show. Yeah, and I wasn't that enamored of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I like writing narrative drama. Okay. That's but what I like doing. But is there some way, do you look at a technology right now and go, whoa, that's interesting, like Snapchat or... Do you use those things? I or? use those things to talk to the audience and learn from the audience. 
and just learn what's going on in the world. But I know that there are storytellers who, who are every bit as much about storytelling as I am who are going to find ways to tell their stories in those media. What about VR? Um, I think VR is awesome. I think VR is, um, is, is more exciting as a storytelling medium than 3D ever was. Yeah. What would you make in VR? I would like, I mean, I don't know, but I would want to make a movie or a television show. Could like you to, imagine being to, inside the yeah. house at the L Word? Yeah. That you're there with them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's a way to do that. Do you, are you going to pursue that? Or have you done it? I, I just because did a podcast with John Favreau, the director, about that. He's all, that's all what he's about right now, which is very interesting. I'm not, a pre, I'm not pursuing it right now, but I, I think if somebody were to come to me at some point and say, let's do this, I would be interested in taking it on. It just seems to me to be a, a world where narrative could thrive. Also, there's haptic, you know. I don't know if you know, do you no, know what I that is. No, I have no idea what you're talking about. It touches back at you. Haptic? You, so you've, haptic. No, not dick. No, it's haptic. H-A-P-T-I-C. Okay. It, it touches back, you feel it back at you. You push against a chair or some, a wall and it feels like a wall. You push against, and eventually it'll, you know, you ever been at a Disney ride and they spray water at you and they pretend you're in the thing? It's like uh-huh. that, but, okay. but digitally. That's, Sounds so you could be terrifying. at an L in the room. <laughs> I know, but I'm just saying that's going to be part of it. it and it sounds like a, a great way to have sex. All right. Okay. Yes. That's, I think that's where it's going to start. Yeah. Um, and then it'll go on from there. Um, but it always starts with porn. It's, mm-hmm. it's the natural way to do things. Um, so let's finish up talking. Is there anyone with questions from the audience? I can't really see really well. Um, we're going to get there in just three minutes. So just get ready. Just, I just have a time for like two questions. I want to talk about the current administration. Why? <laughs> How do you, well, you were talking, but because, because she's made a show that pushed back, what do you think we have to do? You, presumably, you're part of the resistance or the, the idea of resisting. What do you think the key things are as a creator in Hollywood to communicate that? Um, we have to just keep on being radical storytellers. And I mean, we have to be activists in our life and continue to be political and to rage in, in the streets and not accept what's happening but as storytellers we just we have to be radical storytellers and I think that one of the things that changed the most since I started writing television since I started doing the L word is that we used to have to be very stealthy about Mm -hmm. our politics and pretend that we were just entertainers that we have no politics if there if you sense politics it's just um some kind of the stay in your lane argument yeah right and I feel like we can be much more open about the fact that we have agendas now. Mm-hmm. I am open about my agenda. And anybody that works with me, even Fox, mm-hmm. knows that if I'm telling a story, if I'm making a show here, I'm doing it with an agenda. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to make a show that speaks to a lot of people or considers different points of view, but I have... You know, I have a point of view, and it's going to be in my show. Right, and you, and you don't have to worry about it. Before, you did have to worry about well, it. Well, not only do I not have to worry about it, but it makes my work better. Everybody, you know, we, we need to approach the stories we tell with passion. Mm-hmm. And that means that we can't pretend that we don't care or have one point of view or another. So if I come at you raging or wanting to change the world, that's a good thing. That's a good thing for you as, an, as a creator. And you don't mm-hmm. feel pushback now in Hollywood for no, that? No, I feel support. Do you feel support for it? Mm-hmm. Is there one thing that you would like to make? And, and then again, there's questions right here that you would love to make right now. If you just could wave a wand. And I know you can't probably talk about shows. You're, something really outlandish that you'd like to do creatively. I'm not going to say what it is, okay. but it's a show you know about. It's a show that I've been talking that about one? for you. Yeah, that one. I mean, it's, I have... <laughs> we won't say, but it's good. There, you know, I, I, get, I get obsessed with stories and ideas, and in the way that The Handmaid's Tale was something that I became um, passionate about doing 10 years ago, and now it's finally being done, I don't give up on things. Some things just fade away because they weren't that good, mm-hmm. and didn't get made and probably never deserved to. Mm-hmm. But if there's something that is a great story and deserves to be told, it's not going to go away from 
you know, that little groove in my brain. That's, so that's the one. Okay, good. Well, we can't say what it is because she can't, because she's going to make it. It's going to be great. All right, question right here first. Hi, my name is Stephanie. Uh, so as I'm listening to you guys speak, this question is for both of you guys. Um, I'm thinking about what you said about broadcasting and um, the landscape being just broader in general. There's definitely a trend as young people and, and young kids are growing up in the media landscape to have on-demand content. Yeah. And so my question really is, what are your thoughts around how do you reach people, young people, as they're growing older and passing through the different generations, where on-demand is really, I want to see what, I want to watch what I want to watch. And um, when in the amount, like binging or whatever. Yeah, and, and it's, uh, how do you reach the people that you don't intend for? Does yeah. that make sense? Like, yep. Yeah, that's what so I So what like do you think about that, that on-demand? And how do you, how do you feel like reaching? Elwood wouldn't be on-demand, and The Handmaid's Tale was not. You had to wait and frankly, you can't watch more than one of those at once. I tried to binge two of them, and I wanted to kill myself. Um, but if it but had been made, Netflix is on demand, Netflix, right? yeah, like the binging. So, I mean, Handmaids could have been made on Netflix and released on demand all at once. I mean, yeah. you might not have wanted to watch them all at once, but you have yeah. that choice. As somebody who does what I do, I would just make my show. Right. And I would hope that, I'm, you know, that, that I have a story to tell that belongs in that on that platform. A lot of creators don't like that binging. They don't like, they want to, they want to re release an arc. But people, like she's saying, people don't want to watch that way. They want to watch it when they want to watch it in the way they want to watch it. Oh, I, I, and I want everybody to watch my shows the way they want to watch them. I just want everybody to watch my what shows. What about the platforms? Do you mind people watching you on, um, on a cell phone? No. It's fine. You don't care. Because some people do. They want the look of it, the feel of it. I, I, there used to be, a, we used to romanticize cinema. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think I told you this story ages ago, but I remember a conversation with Steven Spielberg when we first started shooting in digital and it was just, he said, it's, it's, it's not beautiful. It can't be. And, and, and it was, you know, you have to do it this way on film with all of those values. And I think that we know now that you don't and that there are all kinds of different ways to make your art. Right, right. You don't care. I don't care. Yeah. Well, you like people re-watching your show when it's in their eyeball and it just broadcasts in if, front of them? If, if they can close their eyes and see it and I'm telling my story, that's good with me. Yeah, that's how it's going to work. Okay, over here. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And I, I really just wanted to get a sense with your entire course of your career and all the BS that you've put up with and all the moving forth anyway that you've done, how you manage rejection. Oh, rejection. 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 How do you do? You ever get rejected? Yeah. I don't believe any ladies turn you down, Eileen Chaikin. But go ahead. You, you know how long I was single. I know you were single for a long time. I tried so hard to date you, but it didn't work. But no, I didn't. We're very Never good did. friends. No. no. Um, you tried to fix me up. Though. I did try to fix you up. Don't, let's not get into those stories. Life. This is not what these. In any case, um, I, I, you're a hot ticket item. Rejection hurts. It's painful. It's ugly, and sometimes you think that it's the end, but you just push through it and keep going. And I mean, my, my own personal approach to it Yeah, well, you, how been, do you deal with failure? It's, it's you let go and find a new project and sometimes find your way back to that old project. If it's meant to come back, it will. But you just, and, and one of the beautiful things about being a writer is that you can always do it anywhere. Mm -hmm. So even when you feel like nobody wants to hear what you have to say, you can lock yourself in that little room and write something and then write something else. And that's always been my approach. It's just to keep pushing forward in lean times and in good. Yeah, you are, you are like that. Right over here. Hi, my name is Lucy. Um, so I work in television production um, on the production side, but I also consider myself more of a writer and would like to write a story and have started. And um, one thing that I'm struggling with and is part of my question for you is um, I already am jumping ahead to the format that it would take and what it would look like and what it could look like, look like and it's taking me out of the process of actually just writing the story. So it's a kind of a process question. And when you're writing a story, are you already 
completely visually envisioning what it will be and what it could be? Or do you really try and stick to the, the craft of writing, not the craft of what it might be after that? Well, there, there's more than one answer to that question, but it's in part what we've been talking about. So sometimes I know who I'm writing for. And I mean, broadcast is the perfect example. If I'm doing something for broadcast, I know exactly where it's going to wind up. I know what certain um, conventions are. I know how many act breaks there are. I know that I need to find that moment when we cut to commercial, whereas if I'm starting with an idea and it's not kind of predetermined where I'm going to do it, I'll just write. And I try not to think about where I'm going to sell it, whether it's right for FX or for Netflix or this or that. I, and especially in this world where there are so many possibilities for where and how you can tell your story, I know that there's a place. So if I've got a story that I really want to tell, I just write it. And I know that I'm going to do, I'm, I'm, I'm going to honor myself better as a storyteller by not worrying about who's my buyer and whether it's going to be shot yeah. on this or that technology. Yeah, the telcos will always buy it, Eileen, just so you know. They have a lot of money. Okay, La uh, you have also one? Okay, super quick questions, last two. I basically got some really terrible advice from a television producer recently, uh, not recently, a couple years ago. Uh, it was a male television producer who told me that girls are getting in uh, to writing gigs by babysitting for male writers. What? Wow. Yeah. So I was hoping you could give me kind that was of a advice? corrective emotional he's experience. He's saying you should babysit for my children, my awful children? Yeah, babysit right. for a writer's children and maybe, I don't know, leave scripts around his house. And <laughs> um, I think you there might have a lawsuit there. Yeah, a lawsuit. Yeah. Lawsuit. Well, um, but just, just, Lisa just, Bloom is real good. What, what advice would you have given me if I was talking I think to you? You? <laughs> you already know that that's bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, so um, I wouldn't start out with the premise, girls are getting into television. Just you've got a story to tell. Um, if, if indeed you're a writer, then tell your stories. Um, I mean, I'd love to say the future belongs to women, but let's not even genderize it. Let's just say that um, we know we're going to be running things, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, My answer to that helps. is fuck you, you fucking fucker. Okay? <laughs> it works for all kinds of things, and you can mm -hmm. use it at any time. There's also a lovely mug in the Castro. If you ever come up, they sell it. Okay. Uh, I have a T-shirt. I've got, oh, I've got a m <laughs> mouse pad. Okay, very quickly. Hi, my name is Shana, and I've really enjoyed this interview thus far. And I had something that created a really big reaction in me, and I wanted to, it's making my heart beat right now to even ask this question, so I'm going to read it and try to keep it simple. But um, I wanted to push back on a statement that you made and get your reaction that um, you had to sort of tuck your political leanings into your cardigan, kind of, and, um, you know, earlier in your career. And we're in a room of people that are interested in new media, and my fear is that people are going to hear that statement and feel like, well, if I have a view or if I have something to say that is not on the beaten path, I need to tuck that in until I'm established in this new media. And that worries the hell out of me, frankly. So I, I, I think she said she doesn't anymore. She was talking in the 80s. In the she, exactly. But yeah. that was when she, she was building her career. So I guess my, my fear, when I heard that, I thought, well... Did you really have to tuck it in, or did you just make a choice? Maybe that's what I want to ask yeah, you. Yeah, that's a very good question for that time period. Well, in, in yeah. that time period, you really did have to tuck it in. Mm. Yeah. But I don't think you do anymore. And, and I'm not suggesting that everything has to be political, but I think everything hopefully comes from some kind of passion to tell a story or joy at telling a story. Yeah. Um, and... I, I, I'm not sure I understood your question, but I, to be clear, I was saying that we don't have to hide our point of view any longer. Nor should you. Nor should you. One of the points you're making is, one thing you're not realizing is, we're real old. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, it was dangerous. It was. It was. We right. were, both Eileen and I were much more outspoken early on in our careers, but there was a price. And it was a big price at the time. Not that we care, but it certainly is. You should absolutely put your point. That's how you win is putting your point of view out there. 
how we well, all do, right? That, that was certainly what I was trying to say. If I, if I gave you the impression that I was saying the opposite, I was being inarticulate. All right. Very last question for Eileen before she goes, and then we'll say thank you to her. What is your favorite digital medium right now, Eileen, now that I've, and I'll tell you what it should be, but go ahead. What is, what is, <laughs> I don't even understand what that question What do you means? use the most? Well, you, you know I'm a, a what? Luddite. I mean, I just, I, you know, I'm, I'm a Twitter addict. You're a Twitter addict. Yeah. Okay. Right. And it's how I get my, my news every day. Do you interact with people on Twitter? Do you, res you don't respond as much, right? You read mm -hmm. it. I'm mostly reading. I mean, I, I, I mostly, you know, I, I repost things that I think right. are, are insightful or pointed. Right. Um, and mostly I just promote and, and, and do things. But yeah. you don't like get into it with people on Twitter. No. I like that. I do that. I just got in a big fight with Scaramucci, and now we're having lunch. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but what, do you, what do you want invented? I ask this of everyone I interview. What would you like invented? I'll go tell the people up. No I, I know what I want invented, but it's not that exciting. All right. I, I want a portable presidential teleprompter. Meaning? I don't like speaking extemporaneously. Right. I like to write everything. Mm-hmm and know exactly what I'm going to say and refine it and revise it and then walk into a room and sound brilliant. Okay. And so if I had just like an invisible, it's like, you know, Heads that up thing display. you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, that's what I want invented. All right, we'll get on it. Thank anyway, you. everybody, Eileen Chaikin. Fantastic. Thanks again to Eileen Chaikin for joining me on stage and thank you to the team at WNYC for hosting us at their Work It Festival. If you enjoyed this interview and are new to Recode Decode, then you should subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts. And make sure to check out our other podcasts. Peter Kafka hosts Recode Media, where he talks to the smartest and most interesting people in the media world. Lauren Good and I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of your embarrassing questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you'll find audio from Recode's live events, including the Code Conference. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Recode Decode. Thanks also to Cadence 13, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here at my usual time on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. Hi, this is Dan Fromer, editor-in-chief at Recode. I'm here to tell you about a new project we just launched, the Recode 100, and ask for your help. We're trying to make a list of the people in the tech and business worlds who made the biggest impact this year, the winners of 2017. Executives, entrepreneurs, movement starters, designers, whoever, primarily in tech media and commerce, but also some of our new focus areas like transportation, policy, and robotics. We'll unveil the full list and throw a big party for the winners later this year, but for now, we need your nominations. So if you know someone who kicked ass this year or is a rising star in their field, Head to recode.net slash submit by Monday, October 16th to nominate someone and for more information. That's recode.net slash submit.